0: Being an LP, you really learn how to underwrite correctly. You're on a lot of webinars. Syndicators are sending you deals. So you get to see how they're structuring deals, what returns they're promising. And then you start to kind of figure out, hey, you know, once you're able to to underwrite better, which you get a lot better at underwriting doing LP investments, you get to kind of not call bullshit or BS. Sorry, pardon my friend. It's fine. (laughs) but really where they where syndicators get in trouble i find is on the revenue side the expenses are easy to figure out your insurance going to go up your tax is probably going to go up but everything else the expenses you're look you're looking to reduce those those are easy it's the revenue side where people try to increase the revenue or be more unrealistic on what kind of rent they can get for a renovated unit a lot of times i find they were they were relying just on the rent growth of the market for the return for me that that's too aggressive For me as an LP
1: investor, you're listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast. We're not here to bruise your bananas
0: with guru sales pitches, overrated fluff, or any other kind of monkey business. We simply provide the ground pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate.
1: All right. Today's guest is Trent Bussey out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Trent got his start. Uh, he went to LSU, Louisiana state university and got his bachelor's degree. Followed on to get his MBA at the university of Louisiana Lafayette before he joined the Navy to become a naval officer. Uh, after, a, after a quick career there, he got out, got his W two job, which he still has today and eventually started investing in real estate on the side, like all of us do. Trent started out with fix and flips. Uh, Doing some new developments and eventually after taxes killed him, uh, joined multifamily, came over to the light and joined multifamily. Uh, Currently owns a fourplex, eventually got into some syndications on the LP side uh, and now has jumped up to the GP side where he just closed his first deal as a general partner on 123 units in Houma, Louisiana. Trent, welcome to the show, brother. Happy to have you.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, man. So let's talk about... uh, you got out of the Navy, got your W-2 job, because you were a lieutenant commander in the Navy, right? And that's where you met your wife. You guys moved back down to the new New Orleans area. Uh, what made you start investing in real estate?
0: Well, you know, uh, W-2 job, doing good, making making some good money. We have a large family. And uh, you know, the numbers just <laughs> just didn't uh didn't didn't add up, yeah. you know, to you know to be able to retire, it's, it, you know, it's different. I think than when our parents or maybe grandparents are coming up and they can get on with a big corporation work 30 years, get a defined benefit plan. And, you know, the do- dollar was probably a lot stronger back then, you know, the dollars doesn't go that far now. So, you know, just looking for other ways to bring in money, you know, and, and trying to build my own dreams instead of building other people's dreams.
1: I'm guessing your parents did a lot like my parents, so, you know, go go to school, get good grades, get a good job, save, save, save. And it sounds like somewhere along the way, did did you by chance read Rich Dad Poor Dad like the rest of us?
0: I did. I read, yeah. I, read I read Rich Dad Poor Dad actually early on, yeah. and then put it down. You know, I read it. I must have been in college. I was like, oh yeah, that's good and all, but you know, I'm getting my MBA. You know, I'm I'm set, yeah. right? You know? That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, got out, the, got out the Navy and, uh, you know, I was working in, you know, corporate world. And then it's like, oh, let me pick this up again and see what's
1: going on with this rich dad,
0: poor dad. So,
1: uh, yeah, That's love funny. that book. It's a great starter book. It is. That's kind of like the gateway into the way of looking at money. Uh, so you you obviously got into real estate and, and started with fix and flips, right? And uh, and that, that that's kind of like the uh, the gateway drug to real estate, I would say, is fix and flips or single family. Most people tend to go that route. Uh, how many flips did you do? And then uh, kind of like w- what made you go into multifamily?
0: I didn't do too many. I think I did six to eight flips, yeah. you know, and it was good, good pops of money. But as soon as I had to pay those taxes, I was like, there's got to be a better way. Right. So I started looking for the next, you know, what's the next way to go. Right. And, uh, you know, once I got past the limited belief of having to have your own money. Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, a big, a big limiting belief. I think a lot of people have, you know, so uh, once I got
1: past that, then the it's got get how'd you get past that? Because I know a lot of people that just don't they just uncomfortable asking people for money.
0: Right. Well, I started I actually raised money first from my family, which a lot of people would want to raise money from their family last. Right. Yeah. But it re- it really makes you hone in and and make sure the deal is really going to work because, you know, you don't want to go to Thanksgiving dinner. You know, and Uncle Bob's like, "Yeah, where's that 50k, Trent, on that flip you did?"
1: <laughs> right. Pass the potatoes. Right, right, right. So,
0: yeah, I started, and I mean, I'm, I'm not a really, uh, you know, great money raiser yet. You know, I'm, I'm more on the deal side, finding the deal. Uh, you know, of course, we can all, you know, work on raising money, but you know, I, I just ended up just partner with people that could that could raise the money especially on the multifamily side when you're trying to raise you know 1.7 million dollars you know unless you have a big investor pool you know it, it's going to be tough to do without without teaming up with some other people
1: absolutely man well when back when you were doing those flips were you doing all the work yourself
0: no no
1: i did a different
0: model so you know like i said i have i have a big family so i, I wasn't looking to you know swing the hammer. So what I did was I would find a deal and then I would underwrite the deal in the way that I can hire a contractor to do all the work. Now you got to trust the contractor, right? So, you know, I went through a couple contractors but really found a a guy that, you know, we we messed really well and and he would do firm fixed price. So he would say, "Hey, this house turned I'm going to build it for 205,000 and if I go any anything over" then i'm gonna eat that out of my profit because we were splitting 50 50 on the back end so he would cut his profit off on the front and then you know like like a regular contractor he wouldn't charge like the regular amount so he would take his profit off because he made more partnering with me and splitting 50 50.
1: okay that makes if he if he came in short would he uh would he coop that or or no
0: if he came in short me like if he if he, if he did it for ten thousand no if
1: budget. he did it if he did it for ten thousand dollars cheaper was that money his
0: yeah because the way i look at it is the way i like to underwrite i want i want as many fixed costs as possible okay so it's like Perfect. hey man if you say 205 and then you do it for for cheaper you don't even have to tell me we got our deal 50 50 <laughs> on the back end yeah but if you go over, I don't want to hear from you <laughs> then either.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I've, I saw I've never done a fix and flip. And that that's interesting to me. I didn't know uh, that you could do a fixed price like that. So that's awesome.
0: Well, the, I mean, you know, on the on the new builds, the numbers are tight, right? Yeah, Th- those are easy for the contractor. They're taking they're taking on a little bit more risk when when it's a fix and flip, because they start opening walls and different things. But, you know, we were buying, you know, Katrina houses to where we knew. I mean, they were pretty much gutted anyway.
1: So uh, Katrina happened in 2005. So I'm guessing the timeline works out for you there. Did that open up quite a few opportunities for you uh, after the hurricane in your area?
0: Wow. I mean, I wish I was around here and doing real estate I was still in the Navy until two thousand eleven okay so I mean people were scooping up houses in affluent areas for pennies on a dollar after Katrina and they probably made a buttload, a buttload but I mean we still we still did pretty good on on our flips though
1: yeah it's it's an interesting thing to me how because like we both grew up in Louisiana and I actually own in Panama City I own in Louisiana and as, as horrible as hurricanes are uh, to the area, they bring a lot of opportunity in a couple of years to follow. In fact, there's, there's people called storm chasers who just literally chase hurricanes, natural disasters because the real estate market booms for a couple of years following that. Um, and I'm, I, th- I think with New Orleans, it was like more like five or six years following that. Uh, wow. So. I think even more.
0: They're still, they still, I mean, they're still rebuilding. The, the population is still not back where it was. Jesus. So, okay. I mean, there, there's still opportunity.
1: All right. So you, fit, you realize that to come over to the light and to, uh, and to multifamily, uh, what'd you start out with? How'd you find your deal? And, uh, and then where'd you go from there?
0: Uh, well, as far as the the multifamily side, you know, we bought a fourplex did that, you know, it, it cash flows a little bit, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work. You know, I look at it as a lot of work because, you know, you're getting called at night if the toilet, you know, something happens, a dishwasher, if they leave food in the bottom of the dishwasher, you know, you got to go in yeah. there for that. Uh, but you know, uh, the way I found my deal, the larger the large deal is, is through a broker and really just building that relationship with the broker. And the way what he told me is he said, Trent, I started really giving you the the real off-market because there's a couple different levels of off-market deals, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he get, you know, when I bought this 123 unit in HOMA. I was probably either the only one or I'd like to think I was the only, or maybe one of three people that even looked at it, but he get, he started giving it to me because he said, Hey, look, anything I would send you, you would at least give me feedback and and underwrite the deal because he's like so many people, you know, you send them off Marcus. And you just never hear from them. So, yeah. you know, after a while, he really started giving me, you know, shots at some really good deals. So,
1: how long did it take uh to build that trust with that broker?
0: I don't want to scare anybody off. It really t- it really took 4 years.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you did you did you decide to start syndicating uh like 4 years before you got your first deal closed on the well, GP side?
0: No. Uh, no, I <laughs> Now I talked to the broker over the years, but I mean, I didn't really get serious, serious until after I did some LP investing. So maybe it was a, maybe it was a year, year and a half where I was really, really, you know, bring him to lunch a lot, talking to him and he was starting to send me more deals, but I've been knowing him for years.
1: Okay, cool. So you, you essentially went into multifamily where it was, you bought it with your, own money, right? The, the four unit managing it yourself, and then decided, okay, I want to get into multifamily, don't want to do as much work. So you went passive on the LP side, the limited partnership side. And you did that three times, right? You, uh, over a thousand units as a limited partner. What was your experience with those syndicators? Uh, and, then, and then what made you decide you want to do your own syndications?
0: I had two good experiences and one bad experience. Okay. With the with the, with the syndicators, so w- what I learned the best thing that I've learned being an LP is you learn you really learn how to underwrite correctly, right? right. And then you're on a lot of webinars, uh, you know. Syndicators are sending you deals, so you get to see how they're structuring deals, what returns they're promising, and then you start to kind of figure out. Hey, you know, once you once you're able to to underwrite better, which you get a lot better at underwriting and doing LP investments, you get to kind of not call bullshit or BS. Sorry, pardon my friend. It's fine, <laughs> but you know, if they're really where they where syndicators get in trouble, I find is on the revenue side. The expenses are easy to figure out. You know, I mean, your insurance is going to go up, your taxes probably going to go up, but everything else, the expenses, you're looking, you're you're looking to reduce those. And those are easy. It's The revenue side where people try to increase the revenue or be more real, more unrealistic on what kind of rent they can get for a renovated unit. Yeah. Right. And so, because a lot of times they, a lot of times I find they were, they were, they were relying just on the rent growth of the market for the return. And that's for me, that that's too aggressive for me as an LP investor. You know, I want you. I want some forced appreciation. Yeah. You know, a little bit more than putting a backsplash. Yeah, yeah. So, you <laughs> You know, you. like the, the broker, you talk to the broker and he says, "Hey, you know, Trent, man, two you can get two hundred dollar rent bump if you put a new uh, backsplash on this." I'm like, "No, man, I'm not doing that."
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, you can't. They you can't. <laughs> Takes a little but, bit more. You know, that. they right. Yeah, but yeah, I'm just
0: joking. But uh, yeah, so the bad experience that I had was just not getting good communication from the syndicator. You know, the other syndicators that were giving me good communication, either uh, one group once a month, I was getting some communication, the other group once every quarter, but getting really good communication. And the other guy, his group, we just didn't really hear from him. And I wanted to know what was going on with the property. You know, he ended up selling getting forced to sell to sell for some reason by 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 you know pref equity partner which is a little bit higher on the stack and gets a little bit more say so Mm. and they got forced to sell for some reasons i think he kind of fudged maybe on how much equity he had in the deal of his of his own own skin in the game and uh you just kind of learned that lesson i mean i still made some money but I'm not going to do any more deals with him.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about with fudging. With because at the end of the day, one of those pitch decks is just somebody putting, manually putting numbers into something. And I've seen, I've seen it happen where you can sit there, watch somebody underwrite, and they say, okay, well, let's see what we can do here. And that makes the number work. Okay, look, That doesn't make the number work. It's just moving numbers around. But at the end of the day, if the numbers that you're moving around aren't realistic, then the, all you're doing is selling a lie, And I could see how it happened. Uh, and, and what would be some red flags from you if you are telling somebody, hey, who wants to be a limited partner? What red flags from the general partnership would you tell them to look out for?
0: Right. So, so when, when, when you're looking at a deal from, from a group and the deal is kind of small, maybe $5 million or less, but there's a high acquisition fee percentage and there's a high asset management fee percentage, that means that they don't really believe in the deal and the deal's too thin.
1: Uh, think define, it, define high f-
0: for them. Three, 3% asset management fee, I think is high on a small deal because when you, when you start to underwrite and you see, well, like they're just making sure that they get paid. And they're putting that percentage up to where the gp can get paid because hey we're you know they're in the business of making money right so we don't do this for free i mean we love real estate but hey you know we're trying to build you know some legacy wealth ourselves but if they have to put that percentage up that high to where they are definitely getting paid because that asset management fee they're getting paid before the investor before that pref equity
1: yeah what about acquisition fee what would you say would be a high acquisition fee
0: it, it, it just depends i look at how much money it is uh you know the percentage doesn't really i mean they're doing work i mean i just been through one right and i did the physical due diligence the financial due diligence there's some work to get to get it to the finish line yeah you know but if you if they're you know if they're like if it's a large deal and they're trying to get five, $600,000, <laughs> you know, yeah. for an acquisition fee, because if they do it by percentage, they are like, Oh, well it's industry standard. And it's 50 million. Look underwriting. I mean, doing due diligence on a $50 million property and a $25 million property is not that different. Yeah. There's more units to walk, but, but you usually having your property management company come in and, and walk the units you know, with you anyway.
1: Yeah, I agree to that. It's I, I would say the acquisition percentage would be a little higher on smaller deals and lower on larger deals. But the the asset management fee, I agree with you. Like it, and it and it it depends on. To me, it depends on what the the uh, projection, what the, the business plan. If it's a heavy lift, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in there then I can agree to pay a, lot, a higher asset management fee. But if it's a turnkey property and that's what you're buying into with lower returns, well, then don't lower the returns for the investors by increasing your asset management fee. Right. Uh, and for the, the, the people who are listening and, uh, who have never done a syndication uh, acquisition fee is just that the, the general partnership team is going to charge a percentage just like a real estate broker would for brokering the deal up front, putting it all together and they deserve that because uh without them doing that there would be no opportunity to invest in. You just got to make sure like if your real estate broker told you they were going to charge you 10% to sell your house, well you'd probably say I don't care how good you are, I'm not doing that, right? So right. you got to make sure that uh the industry standard for acquisition fee I think typically caps out around 2%. Uh you see one to one and a half on larger deals, 2% on the smaller deals, but if somebody's doing 3% uh, then, then it had better be a dang good deal, like something that only they could get because of their access to off-market deals. Um, but right. yeah, so anyway, so you decided to do the LPs, did did two LPs uh, that you liked, one that you didn't like. What other red flags would you say are out there?
0: Um, I mean, mainly, really, for, for me, it was communication, right? So I want to be communicated with as an investor. Uh, not 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 on the phone or anything, just just send us, you know, send us what's going on. You know, definitely tell us the problems you're running into. It's even better than telling us the wins, right? Yeah. Yeah. At least you're, you know, being on but that that's the main thing. Main thing is is when you learn how to underwrite really well by looking at a lot of these deals, just looking at those percentages, being able to say, Hey, it's a little bit too thin, meaning they're just getting, or if you're getting a, you're getting paid mostly on the sale, right? Yeah. So say so like, oh well, IRR, or you know, your annual rate's going to end up being you know twenty percent a year, but it's on the sale, right? Yeah. Seven years, seven years from now, we don't know what the cap rates are going to be. We know they're, I mean, we know they're compressed right now. Now they may creep up a little bit, but. I mean, that long, I want to get paid more on the cash flow. Yeah. So that's why I like the bigger value add deals, especially for the LPs, because you know that you can pay them off of the cash flow, yeah. right? And not relying on that sale, because if you're tying their money up for three, five, seven years, you know, I like to give them a lot of that, a lot of that meat on the cash flow.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, Banking it on market appreciation uh, five to seven years from now, you know, that's that's just like uh, buy, you know uh, what's the old saying: buying for cash flow and equity happens, right? I mean, that's right. it doesn't change at multifamily. If you if you buy because it cash flows, you can't go wrong because even if the market goes down, you can hold on to it; it'll still cash flow. But if you're banking on that sale happening at the end and it appreciating, you know, 20%, if that doesn't happen and you didn't cash flow, you just tied your money up for five years for, for really right. not much. So uh, and that's for, for me, the things to look out. And this is recently because I've been looking at uh, at Koji Ping with other deal sponsors. So it's not uh, it's not much different than looking at it from L.P. Um, standpoint if they put the deal together bringing you in uh, on that deal package to help them get it to the finish line one of my biggest red flags if there's a lot of of maybes or possibilities or we could or we woulds before closing I'm out right I, I need it to be this is the plan this is what we are doing not we could do this we would do that or you know it's possible we could do something to the laundry facility no 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 Once the money is wired, the plan is in place. Now, I I can 100% agree with leaving room left and right to deviate from a plan in the event something outside of the plan happens, a contingency, perhaps. But I'm I'm in the military, you were in the military, we plan for contingencies. And if if I don't see that translate into the real estate world, then you haven't thought about uh, what the stress test you haven't considered what could go wrong and what you're going to do quickly in the event it goes wrong Um, and I'm not one for what ifing something to death you know we do that a lot in the military what if what if what if but you need to what if at least a couple layers back in my opinion if you don't see that in the plan and when you ask questions you don't get those answers to me that's a big red flag what do you think about that
0: right well I mean I I don't know about you but seeing a lot of people closing deals out there and and I'm wondering how some of these deals are working. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, so I would rather, you know, close on the ones that are going to work definitely going to work than than close three in a year that are so thin. You're, you're hanging your investors out there, you know, risk, you know, for your investors and for you and for your reputation. Right. So, yeah, yeah I definitely agree with that.
1: All right. So let's, let's, let's talk about the, uh, the, the most latest acquisition. You have 123 units in home Louisiana, your first general partnership or your first time on the general partnership side. So you've seen it three times as a limited partner. Uh, I'm guessing that, 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 uh, created some interest there for you to be on the general partnership side. And earlier you had talked about not not wanting to do not wanting to swing the hammer, not wanting to do a ton of the work. And uh, h- how's that worked out with you? I know you're not swinging the hammer, but how much work have you had to put in uh, since you decided to get started? Kind of tell me that timeline to now you finally just closed your first deal.
0: Wow, um, it's still a lot of work, but when you love what you're doing, or you know you, you know when you're passionate about it. So I mean, most of the work up front was, you know, during, during, you know, I got a W2. So during lunch, I'm talking to brokers in the evenings on the weekends. I'm, um, I'm underwriting, right. Yeah. Talking to brokers and underwriting, talking to brokers underwriting. And what I was trying to do, which was kind of a mistake, which hindered me really, cause you know, four years, right. or well, I'm yeah. saying four years, I'm re- really serious, maybe a year and a half to get it done. But, I was trying to find deals and raise the money. Yeah. So, you know, kind of chasing two cats where I'm thinking maybe it should have been either or, right. So I was yeah. trying to funnel, you know, you know, come from healthcare. So talking to doctors, bringing them the lunch and doing that. And then in between, I'm talking to brokers, bringing them the lunch, underwriting at night, you know, those types of things. So. Where, where really the catalyst that really made me pivot or really, I think, catapulted me to really get a deal was when I decided who, not how, not, not how do I raise the money, who can yeah. I partner with that, that can raise the money, and I don't have to worry about that side. And I can strictly look for deals, underwrite deals, and maximize that to where I can get to that first deal.
1: And and so how did you end up finding a good partner?
0: Paying for proximity. So, I mean, going to conferences and going to master classes and I'll, pl- I'll plug my guy right here. Cause he's, he has a great class, but uh, Tim Brott's commercial empire is where I went in October of 2018. And that's where, you know, I, I met some guys there and, and, and through, uh, through that kind of family is, is where I found my partners.
1: You just said paying for proximity. I've never heard that, but that makes perfect sense, right? Especially, uh, essentially getting into the room where the deal makers are at. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's that's so a perfect saying. <laughs> so I'm, so I'm going to do a little bit of a, you know, we're both military,
0: we're both Navy guys. So, I mean, when I'm in, you know, when I'm at my in-laws, you know, we're, we're, we're play, we're playing golf we're, my father-in-law and I, he's a retired master chief. We're playing golf on North Island on Coronado all the time. And it's, it's yeah. super cheap, you know, but I mean, you're not going to raise money. I mean, you, you possibly could raise money on that golf course, you know, cause they'll, they'll pair us up with other people, yeah. you know, cause there's a lot of people playing, but that's why some people there now I haven't done this, but you know, why not join a country club? I mean, yeah. yeah, you're, 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 you're paying for that proximity, but I mean, you might be, if you're, if you're in a golf club that, that costs money, costs a good, pretty penny, that's, that's going to be people with money that's playing there yeah, and not looking to, you know, play at the community course or on base or something like that. So. Yeah.
1: On base. So I, I tell you what, I, my original uh, perception of the military network, I was like, man, I don't, I don't really care to network a bunch of military people. They're just as broke as I am. But the one thing that I figured out is there's a lot of Facebook groups and stuff with military, ex-military, where people who took the reality that, you know, like getting the mission done, whatever it is, uh, when they get out of the military and now they basically unleashed into the world of capitalism and, 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 and investing, and they've been waiting to do it until they could retire or whatnot, or maybe now they're retired after 20 years and they have a, a life sustaining check. It might not be a lifestyle sustaining check, but it is a life sustaining check. Uh, and they can, you know, they've been waiting 20 years to get out and do it. And now they've doing it. Uh, right. My my military network has actually helped me close uh, close my first deal because the majority of the people just got money sitting around and they they haven't been able to employ it because it's just been stacking up. Uh, and so I've kind of shifted my mind, but it's not, you're, you're not going to meet somebody in the military who's got a couple mil to drop. You know what I mean? It might be 50, a hundred thousand, maybe if they're out in California and the housing market went up or something, but you're not going to meet a dude who can solve all your problems in one fell swoop in the military for sure. And
0: and with raising money, what, what I've been told, and I forgot who told me this, but raising 50... 50,000 from someone and raising 250,000 from somebody is, is totally different they're totally two different type of investors. So yeah. whoever's going to stroke a check for $250,000, you're never going to hear from them. Really? Cause they're, they're going to be more, more of a sophisticated type investor. Yeah. They're probably deploying a lot of money if they're yeah. deploying 250 K into one deal,
1: yeah. Expect,
0: you know, but uh, you know, $50,000 for someone to get, you know, they might, they might want to know what's going on with the property a lot more. That's probably a lot of money to them, right? Yeah. So, so you're
1: saying that the $250,000 check writer, once the check's written, they, they just, they kind of know what's going on. They're not going to bug you about it, but $50,000 that's probably somebody's like life savings right, right there. And they, Hey man, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it's a lot more investors to uh, for investor relations. I mean, if you're, if you're in, if you're raising 50 a pop, and are you know 1.7 say or 2 million dollars i mean that's 40 yeah. people
1: yeah 100% well so was your uh, 123 unit was that a 506b or 506c
0: we did a 506c on that one actually
1: okay okay so did you by the time uh by the time you you said you pretty much split chasing two tails right uh and you focused on the deals you partner with your capital raiser or not your capital raiser your general partner who could had the ability to raise more capital was that what made it where you guys could uh do a 506c cuz he had more accredited investors in his network
0: right right so yeah so i mean i it's it's a group it's two guys and and they they're, they're kind of built out and um they have you know some asset managers and, and and some but they do 506c i mean they raised all the money <laughs> Most of the money to
1: raise in a weekend. Jesus, man.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> that's awesome. No. Yeah. Well, that that, is that helps solve your problem, right? So now you can focus on what you've been focusing on, which is underwriting deals. And you've said it probably five times you learn how to underwrite, you learn how to underwrite. Uh, and that's a skill set that. Uh, I know a lot of the bigger guys that, yeah, they, they know how to see what wrong looks like on an underwriting spreadsheet, but they don't want to have to go through the work to, put all, to, to vet every single deal. So it right. sounds like that you, you're, you solved a problem with them, which is deal flow and having a package where they can quickly say yes, and they solved the problem for you, which is raising capital, and, and now you guys have a, a good relationship in that matter. And I think that that is very important. It's in fact that's a a, a mindset that most syndicators, I believe, go through. Uh, self included when they get started is they think that they're they're gonna be the sponsor they're gonna be the KP or probably didn't even realize you have to have a sponsor when you got right. started, right? Like <laughs> what's a KP, right? Like uh wait I have to have net worth the 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 same amount as the loan. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> that, right. This deal
1: just got real small right, <laughs> right. <laughs> going right. back to the fourplexes, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. Uh and I and what I've noticed is it's it's typically you know six to eight months uh but from the time you get started and all right i'm serious i want to syndicate something until you realize i can't do this alone and i need to start looking for other people and it's about a year until people actually close on a deal uh if i mean once you get serious if you're dipping your toe into i think i want to syndicate you know like you said four years of being interested but one year of all right, I'm doing this. And it's, it's not a quick process, right? So tell me, kind of talk, walk me through, uh, you know, what you said, you, you um, made the mistake of thinking you of chasing two tails. Then you met these guys and they solved that problem. Is this, is this your team now or are they completely separate and they'll, they'll partner with you if the deal is right. Are you, are you still out there on your own trying to do all this stuff? or Do you have other people that are part of your team?
0: well I, I'm still on my own, and so I think my next step is is finding someone else to compliment me, be on my full-time team you know partnering up with someone else uh, maybe that maybe that that can raise a little you know can raise some money because I'm not focusing on that part. I mean, I can do the operations, the asset management, you know those things uh, underwriting a deal it, find deal but uh that that's that's pretty much the next the next step for me would be uh finding a, a partner to be on my team because the guys that i did they'll partner with me again but yeah. they said hey man well you know let's do one more deal together or more and then after that trim man you need to be doing your own deals you know and which yeah. is good you know and it's like hey if you get into a problem to where it's you know 50 million dollars and you got a team and 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 it's a little bit too much for your, for you to close and Hey, look, we'll partner again, you know, we'll we'll get our groups together and and partner again. But um, yeah. So I'm still kind of, you know, solopreneur. I got, I have a a virtual assistant that's helping me with, uh, with some being more consistent on, on the marketing side, you know, a little bit branding and, you know, staying on social media, but I'm looking for other ways to, to uh, get out of my own way, I would say, because, you know, I'm the choke point, right? So yeah. even with underwriting, if, if I'm doing the revenue generating activities only, which is talking to sellers, talking to brokers, and even talking to investors, even though yeah. I'm not focusing on raising money, then choke point is underwrite. Now I can yeah. underwrite a deal, but how can I underwrite 10 deals? Yeah, instead of two deals. So I'm looking at possibly filming myself underwriting, and then you know possibly maybe hiring some virtual assistants to do some of that initial put a lot of the numbers in. Then I can fine tune it.
1: Are you trying to work yourself out of your W two job?
0: Of course, I yeah. <laughs> I am. I would love to do real estate full time because it's not work to me. I mean, I really enjoy it.
1: How how far like? Have you have you set up your a goal for like a, a a timeline for that and and are you on track to do so?
0: Timeline. I mean, I haven't did you know I haven't reversed engineered with you know exactly like when I would be able to do it. I probably should right. But a lot of people say throw around that ten thousand a month, you know, type uh you know, to get out of their W-2 and I'm right around there too. That's, that's kind of what I need, you know, uh, to get out of W-2. So I need probably two more deals depending on how much meat's on the bone.
1: Yeah. I hear, I hear a lot of people say, you know, you don't want to get into syndications with people that are, that are, that are part-time syndicators. And while there's some truth to that, there's another side of the coin that I look at and I says, well, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true because, Part-time syndicators have a W-2 job. So they're not desperate to get a deal done. Whereas full-time syndicators, if, if there's no deal getting done, there's there's no money being made. So just kind of think in your head who who do you who do you want to deal with? Somebody who has to get a deal done, regardless of the underwriting, regardless of the market, regardless of the process, or somebody who has the ability to not do a deal and still be fine. Uh, To me, there's, and I don't want to say that full-time syndicators are desperate, but there is definitely the potential there for them to get desperate in the event that things start to go south. And those are likely the people you're going to see who need the higher acquisition fees, who need the higher asset manager fees, because they have, that's their only source of income. So they got to have that cash flow for themselves as well. So I kind of I, I kind of call bullshit on uh, you can't do it part time. I think you do need to have a good team. You need to have somebody who's very experienced. Uh, but I, 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 me and my team, uh, everybody on our team has some sort of other job carrying us through, which allows us to be a lot more patient. And allows us to, to to only pounce on deals that makes absolute sense for our investors. Uh, and so that's that's my perspective on it. And I, I don't think you need to be full time to do it but obviously everybody who's doing it wants to go full time well, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't love doing it right so
0: right <laughs> yeah yeah cuz we're we're doing it you know i'm doing it late at night or or if i can get up early in the morning i'm more of a night person mm-hmm. but uh, i think i think the part time the, the part timers that are trying to get out like i can really speak for myself we're hungry too you know and we're yeah. willing you know, having that work ethic to be able to stay up at night, or, or or earlier in the morning, and and maybe sacrifice some other things that people would be doing maybe on on the weekend or, or you know, is that says a lot too.
1: So what's your vision like? What what are you, what are you chasing with all this? What's at the end of the the life of this?
0: Chasing cash
1: flow, man. <laughs> yeah, but why? Like, <laughs> what, what's the what's the ultimate goal? What are you gonna do with that cash flow?
0: Oh, uh, well, I mean, my family and I—we want to travel a lot. You know, my my wife's family's from the Philippines. You know, my you know, we want to go out there. I want to be able to go somewhere for a month at a time. You know, I, I don't want to have to ask permission to go anywhere. You know, yeah. from somebody. You know, and and sh- you know that, that's more of a short-term goal is. You know, being able to to travel and do things, and then and then maybe, you know, later on, I mean, you know, impact the world in some kind of way, uh, you know, something for good, right? You know, yeah. Maybe giving back to the military or, uh, you know, something something like that. But uh, in the short term, yeah, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to, to be able to travel more with my family. You know, I mean, I have a 17 year old. She's about college so you know to be able to travel where she's at and you know there's only so much leave you have when you're working for someone yeah and that, that's the biggest aspect i don't like
1: <laughs> yeah ask a permission to leave yeah i feel you on that one uh, i'm out in guam right now i definitely yeah. don't live in guam <laughs> <laughs> yeah well uh speaking of your family i noticed your uh one of your most recent facebook posts was you had your daughter be in your uh your filmographer for walking through your 123 unit. So I'm guessing that you, you, you uh, probably take pride in bringing your kids around kind of showing them what it is you're doing. Do you, do you guys uh, have a household where you don't talk about money at the table or do you have a household where money's talked about at the table?
0: I'm drilling money <laughs> to their head all the time. I think, <laughs> I think they're sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, cause I'm on this kick of, you know, don't build other people's dreams. We can't do it. Like our parents did it, you know? And so I'm constantly, you know, beating that into their head. You know, you don't have to work for someone else if you don't want to, you know, I want to be the last generation to make that choice. Right. You know, I'm going to get out, but I look at it as getting out, right. Getting out from the W2. Yeah. But for them, I mean, it's an option that they have, you know, if they have their dad who's doing it, and they want to start a business or, or be able to buy real estate, I mean, I can help them with that. So, what I do is for the apartments, I bring one at a time. Yeah. You know, they they come one at a time with me, and and then I just talk to them. I mean, my twins are, I don't know what I'm really going to tell them, right? You know, but I got a 17 year old where I can do a little bit higher level, and yeah. you know, you know, eight and seven year olds, so.
1: Yeah, I bring them both. It just turns into a play fest. <laughs> right. <laughs> Get anything out of them. Yeah, I hear you. That's uh so like so me and uh I start I didn't start out in real estate. I started out uh me and my brother, we run baseball tournaments throughout Louisiana to Florida, all the way up to uh Kentucky. But I was running baseball tournaments and we, you know, make money off the concession stands. So I'd bring my daughter, she was like five five to seven and uh man she I, te- I taught her a little bit of branding she went and got her her uh a her she picked her name her name was gumball Kylie and she nice. had a <laughs> uh, airbrush shirt gumball Kylie she had the whole outfit little little pink hat little bubble gum hat and she'd roll around with a fanny pack and a bucket of bubble gum and uh she was like I want to sell these one at a time and I says well hey how about this how about you make how much you want to sell each one for she says you know 25 cents. I says, okay. Well, why don't why don't we put 10 in a bag and you sell it for two bucks? How about that? And she goes, Well, who's gonna buy 10 pieces of gum? I said, Girl, you're gonna see who's gonna buy two (laughs) pieces of gum. And she would go out instead of selling one little piece of gum, she would sell bag of 10. People would tip people pay five bucks for a bag of gum. She would make 80, 90 bucks in a day as a as a five-year-old right wow i mean she, she and she thought that was gonna last forever now she's 12 <laughs> ain't nobody cares <laughs> you, ain't as, you ain't cute you ain't gumball you ain't kylie cute. you're kylie making money so uh that that wore off but she loved it i mean it, it was fun to see uh my kid out there hustling you know what i mean and, and having a good time but i think that's important i grew up you know uh at the table you didn't talk about religion you didn't talk about politics you didn't talk about money it seems like those are the only topics uh, they get talked about anymore. But definitely in my house, I like talking about money, uh, and I th- I think you know uh, it's important that your kids kind of you know that you don't hide it from them because once they get old older that it's been hidden and now the only thing it's going to teach them is college, which everybody who's in college is all about the W two go get your job work for the man. So yeah, I'm glad you said that. Well, cool. Um, so let me ask you this: What's been your biggest failure failure or your biggest mistake in real estate
0: biggest failure let's see i could talk about the time i almost lost my brother-in-law's money or i can (laughs) talk about the time that i was going to build a residential assisted living three houses but i lost that deal because i couldn't raise money
1: let's Let's talk talk about the the brother-in-law
0: Okay. So, my brother, my brother- in law, you know my wife's brother, you know he's he's like, trying to doing real estate, I'll do you know, so he was giving me the money to put down on the flips or the new build. So I'd go buy a lot or I'd get a construction loan, and I would have to put down ten or fifteen percent of the whole deal. So, if the house cost two hundred thousand and the lot was one hundred thousand, so we'd have to put thirty down. Long story short. I bought this I bought this this big house for like three hundred thousand in the irish channel in in New Orleans, which is it's kind of like off St Charles. it's you know it's it's becoming really affluent, right? And we we're gonna put I don't know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars into it. Well, they have this it's a historic district, right? So I'm like, okay, so like i'm I'm underwriting everything, and I usually underwrite okay, six months to do the renovation six months to sell, you know, and then that's a whole year, you know, and I'm usually pretty good. I mean, it's usually pretty good, you know, underwriting. So I did that. We bought the place and then back of the house it's called a camelback. So we kind of go like this and then it was like this back portion. Okay. Well, the historic, we needed to, we needed to tear that down to do what we're going to do. We already had architectural plans, everything. And the historic district found out that it was original to the house, which meant we couldn't tear it down. So then that took months. So we had to uh, get a structural engineer to determine that, you know, we had to tear that portion down. And once you tear it down, then there's nothing historic to save. But it was just taking too long. And I was, you know, I was, you know, I mean, the bills were piling up. And so. I could have still, we could have made a bunch of money if I went to the end, but the investors are always more important. Right. And so, you know, I just pulled the plug and I wholesaled it to to someone else. We still made a little bit of money, but it was getting, it was getting kind of dicey there for a while, you know, because I, you know, it was a bigger property and, you know, so there's only so many investors that'll, you know, buy for, you know, those more expensive properties, but uh, you know, Another investor came in and partnered with my contractor buddy, uh, and he still stayed on the deal. Somebody else came in, and I think they put, we're all in like 600-something thousand, and I think they sold it for like over a million. So, I mean, they still made a bunch of money, but I mean, for me, it was more important to get my brother-in-law's money back (laughs) yeah (laughs) again
1: that thanksgiving dinner
0: (laughs) so i think the mistake in there was was not so much of a well i guess a mistake is is just going into an area where dealing with the historic district not dealing with the historic district before and just uh not not being educated enough on that part you know and it kind of went awry on me so
1: yeah, I hear you. Well, cool. So the question that I ask everybody to kind of wrap up the show is, uh, is one I didn't, I didn't prep you with this question, which I normally we do. Did. So I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give you a second thing. But the question is, what really bruises your bananas about real estate? What I mean about that? Is uh, what's the biggest lie being told in the real estate world? Uh, no matter no matter what it is, any flavor of your choice. But what what what's the bad gouge being put out about real estate?
0: The bad gouge being put out.
1: I knew I should have prepped you. Damn, it.
0: you should have prepped
1: me. I should have prepped you. <laughs> yeah, you can't mass for you, man. Come on, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> uh, so on.
0: on so on the multifamily side, not the bad gouges, but you ever, you ever see just closing these close. I think the bad gouge is that the rent's going to continue to go up. Yeah. You know, like, Hey, if you go into Austin or if you go into, uh, you know, cause Austin is really hot or you go into Phoenix, the rent, you're going to get that annual 3%, right? Oh, annual 3%, annual 3%. You can underwrite the 3%. And I think that's bad advice. I really think that's, I think people should be focusing more on what you can do with the property. Does the property work without, without that kind of cost of living increase or the increase in rent in the market? Yeah. Are you reliant on the market giving you gifts, right? It's pretty much reliant on the market, giving you gifts. That should be the cream on the top. Yeah. it, it, It should work. It should work without that or or like just 1% on there cuz you know everything's going to go up like you know half percent 1% you know inflation a year but i think that's bad that that's what i that's what i would think you know to underwrite to that 3% to make deals
1: work yeah and what what you talk about is not the rent going up after renovations have been made, right? That's that. And and, and I'll explain because I know exactly what you're talking about. You see kind of on that waterfall structure, the, 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 on the underwriting like yeah, it's going to go up 3% automatically. Well, that's right. not, you don't know that, right? You're assuming that, and that, that is an assumption and we're allowed to make assumptions. You just have to make sure that your assumptions are at a minimum realistic conservative is better but sometimes being so conservative means opportunities just fly right by you without you 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 being able True. to take action but realistic right and it's got to be based on historical data which a lot of times it is but there's also a 2008 in history right <laughs> there's a, there's also a, a right. covid in history there's a lot of things that that come up but if if somebody is showing you a deal and it says yeah the market can bear an extra hundred dollar in rent if the units are renovated, and they show you comparables, three or four different uh, backsplash. Yeah, backsplash. yeah, yeah. The back, <laughs> you add that backsplash, get two hundred buck rent. Pop. <laughs> but, but if if you can see, if you're an investor and you can see on that pitch deck. All right, there's three other apartment units right down the street in the same neighborhood that have better uh, appliances. They have, you know, they're just a little bit nicer. Maybe the flooring's easier to clean, and they're getting, they're all getting $200 more a month in rent. Well, then that justifies that rental increase, but that rental increase takes time and effort, right? It takes renovating the property. What we're talking about is if all four of those apartment complexes are getting the same rent and they're the same look and you're just assuming that rents are all going to go up. Uh, all ships rise with the tide. that is true, but the tide better be coming in. <laughs> right so that's uh, right right <laughs> that's that's what I like to call the market giving you gifts. you know it's a, a appreciation over time, uh, market rental growth, um, cap rate compression, all of those things are something that a, a syndicator has absolutely no control over. that forced appreciation is what we do have control over right. and underwriting for cash flow. We have control over that too. But as is, it's like the property as is will cash flow. <laughs> but anyways, right, well cool, right. man. Trent, um, yeah, let's that, let's wrap this up with asking uh how can people get a hold to you? Uh, where can they learn more about you? And and what's the best avenue to reach out to you?
0: Uh I'm I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh I have a Facebook group, multifamily wealth factor. If people want to join that, trying to grow a community there, you know, just to kind of help, 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 uh, help limited partners help, you know, general partners, you know, just kind of build a community there. Uh, but, um, yeah, my, my emails, Trent at dot com. Always, always looking to talk multifamily, look, looking for partners, looking for co-GP and looking for investors, you know, and-
1: you only invest in Louisiana or are you looking at, at other markets?
0: No, I'm I'm looking I'm looking at other markets, definitely okay. looking at other markets. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm willing to go where the cash flow is, as long as as long as the population is, you know, try and stay. I don't know, maybe an hour, hour and a half outside of a, a bigger city kind of helps to, hundred thousand yeah. people or more, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean. You know, if you can, you know, put a team together and it's, you know, fl- even a flight away, right? I mean, if you don't have boots on ground there and it's not like a heavy lift, I mean, as long as there's not a
1: connecting flight, as long as you can fly direct, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> don't give me no layovers, man. Right. Yeah. Give me well, no All right, layovers. Trent. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this has been great, man. I appreciate you coming on to the show. I hope you consider me part of your network now and let's connect in the future.
0: Definitely. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast, where we give you the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Learn more at realfocus.org slash guerrillastatepod.